Want to bet? You can do it at Sports Interaction, Canada Sportsbook. Football is back. Baseball playoffs happening right now. And look at that. Hockey season starts this week. You can bet pregame, live in play, or on one of the many prop bets made for Canadians by Canadians. Sports Interaction makes it easy to deposit, play, and cash out. Join now to see all that sports betting has to offer. Head to sportsinteraction.com slash sdpn. That's sportsinteraction.com slash sdpn. Ontario only, 19+. plus. Please play responsibly. This is Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wilde. Powered by Sports Interaction, Canada's Sportsbook. Welcome to another episode of Agent Provocateur. I'm Alan Walsh with Adam Wilde. How are you, Adam? Doing great. Excited for today's episode. This is um, it's a big get, Alan. It, it really is, and it's something that, uh, you know, when we first decided... Uh, together to do this podcast. This is a story that I've always wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just never really had the right person who be able to tell the story uh, from the depth with the depth that really it it requires. And uh, that person is, is now joining us today. I'd like to give him a little introduction for our audience. Um, Bruce, Dobigan is a sports broadcaster, journalist, and writer. He's worked with the Calgary Herald, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and CBC News World, receiving two Gemini Awards for sports broadcasting. Bruce collaborated with the late journalist, Russ Conway. Uh, and we should tell some stories about Russ one day because <laughs> yes. he was a remarkable, remarkable man. He collaborated with journalist Russ Conway on some of the most impactful investigative reporting in the history of the NHL regarding former NHL PA head Alan Eagleson and his financial frauds, theft from the players, and malfeasance with regard to the players' pension plan that ultimately led to Eagleson being criminally charged and convicted of financial crimes and sentenced to prison. Uh, for those people of our generation, they may know who Alan Eagleson is, founder of the NHLPA. Uh, for those who are um, of a newer generation, the idea, contemplate this, everyone, that the founder and head of the NHLPA ended up in prison for stealing from the players. Um, Bruce wrote, the fantastic book, really one of my favorite books ever written on sports and hockey, Money Players, The Amazing Rise and Fall of Bob Goodenow and the NHL Players Association. Let's give a big welcome to Bruce Dobigan. Thanks very much, guys. It's good to be, good to be with you. It's always great to talk about the the books that you've done in the past, and uh, think uh, I think I'm up to ten now, ten wow. books. But uh, but now I need help from my my eldest son. He writes them with me because I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting to that age where I don't want to do all the work. But uh, you're very <laughs> kind, and and it was a remarkable story. I mean, uh, one of the things I say about it, and, and and Alan, you'll remember this is I just couldn't believe people more people weren't doing the story in my business. Uh, I kept thinking I, I must be missing something. There must be something wrong here. Why am I the only guy doing this story? And nobody, uh, up until nobody late, wanted to touch it. No, Bruce, they didn't. Nobody wanted to touch it. 
because their access, the way the NHL worked back then and, and perhaps continues to work like this to the present day, mm-hmm. is those that dig and report critically on anything going on is denied access and yep. frozen out. And at the time, before social media, really access was was one of the most important things a journalist had. Yep. So it took yep. a tremendous amount of bravery on your part and courage on your part and Russ Conway's part to write the stories you were writing at the time. Yeah. I, uh, well, I tell people who are younger people, if you're trying to figure out who Alan Eagleson was, just think of Bernie Madoff managing hockey players. That's that's wow. basically who he was. He was a fraudster. Uh, Bernie Madoff, of course, went to jail for the rest of his life, justifiably. Alan Eagleson, because he was uh, sentenced in Canada, did uh, four hard months in the Mimico jail and then was let out on, on parole and now goes around, you know, holding himself up as the founder of uh, of the Canada Cup and all this sort of stuff. And uh, lots of people in Canada still give him a wide berth. I mean, it, it says everything you need to know, Alan, that, that, that these people still uh, give this guy time, still give him oxygen to try to keep his, his reputation going. But yes, I mean, uh, at the time, this would be the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I read a book called Net Worth. Uh, yeah. by Allison Griffiths and David Cruz. And it was about the NHL players trying to get their pension funds properly done. And I read the book. I was reviewing it for the Toronto Star. And I said, this is a great story. I should follow up on that. And the next thing I knew, I was in Carl Brewer's home with his friend Sue Foster and hearing the whole story firsthand. And, and it went from there. To, it was seven or eight years of my life before Eagleson finally went to jail. Wow. Yeah. Now your book, uh, Money Players, you have a funny story about uh, uh, you and me together. <laughs> Why don't you why don't you share that? Well, you know, for, for authors, anytime you get a chance to see somebody reading your book who has not been forced to read your book, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's great. And so I was flying, we're flying to the Bahamas and uh, I was sitting, I guess, a cup, maybe just one row ahead of Alan. I, I don't remember exactly, but he was just behind me and uh, the whole flight. And uh, I didn't know he was reading my book at the time. And I stood up at the end of the flight as I was getting out and looked back and he said, are you Bruce Tobin? And I said, yeah. So I'm reading your book. He held up the book and he'd been reading the book the whole time we were on the plane. And he said, we've got to talk. We've got to talk. And I said, well, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, those those are the kind of flatteries that you get once in a while. And it was a good a good uh, a good way to, to make a bond in right. a very unhockey like place. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you tell us, um, a, a, I think a great place to start is who was and who is Bob Goodnow? Well, Bob Goodno was the guy who had, he was the guy who too basically changed hockey from within the NHL Players Association. You have to understand that in the uh, first 20 years of the Players Association, when Alan Eagleson uh, ran it, there was no culture of hockey players. Everyone was afraid of each other. Everyone resented each other. Uh, oh, is he making more money than me? It was all based on fear. And um, one of the specific things, is, as Alan can tell you, of course, was about salary disclosure. Yes. Whereas all the other sports had salary disclosure, Eagleson kept telling the players, no, you don't want to tell each other what you're making. That'll lead to uh, fr- uh, friction in the dressing room. He had all sorts of cockamamie stuff, he told them. And hockey players, being the kind of guys they are, they went along with it. And Bob came along. And Bob was a student of Marvin Miller, who'd started the Baseball Players Association. Uh, he was, uh, I think he followed uh, Don Fear back when Don Fear actually worked for a living for the players. Uh, he doesn't anymore. Uh, and, and a few people like that. And, and Bob was the guy who came and took over the NHL Players Association when 
all of our stories started to hit home and the FBI and the Justice Department announced they were looking into not only Eagleson, but the Players Association. Al went out the door and Bob Goodenow came in. <laughs> Funny aside, I remember at the press conference when Al was uh, leaving the Players Association and uh, he, you know, all the media guys were all sitting there cooing and billing. Oh, Al, you're so great. And I remember asking him, I said, you know, you, you always said you were Mr. Canada. As, you know, why is it if you were so invested in Canada, why did you take your salary in U.S. dollars and your pension in U.S. dollars? And he looked at me, and said, when did you stop beating your wife? And this was an press, this is in a press conference. So that's the kind of guy he was. And, and he knew secrets about people. And that's why there were I think a lot of people were afraid. Alan hinted that. But they were afraid of him because he knew stuff. And, and Bobby Orr. Uh, one of the reasons that Bobby kept a low profile was because, you know, he and Al had been close and he knew Al could say some things about him that would embarrass Bobby. Uh, Bobby helped in the reporting of the story, but he certainly wasn't uh, the foremost guy in terms of, of, of getting the story. In any event, Bob came in, came in with a modern view of what a sports agency should be. And as, as we're going to talk about, uh, one of his first signature moves was on the eve of the playoffs in uh, 1991, right, Alan? 91? 92. 92, 92, going into the 92 playoffs, the players went on strike with 10 days left in the season. And of course, the owners had grown so, so fat and sassy but with Eagleson in, in, in control that they didn't realize, of course, the players weren't paid for the playoffs. Yeah, there were bonuses and stuff, but it was it was chicken scratch. It was nothing. And the play and Bob Goodnow understand that players had nothing financially to lose by walking out. And it was the first sign of impertinence from him and from the players. The owners were shocked. Uh, they saw they solved the thing in a hurry. They got rid of John Ziegler and they brought in Gary Bettman. But uh, Bob gave the players a sense of culture, gave them a sense of that we're all in this together. Uh, he he was he was revolutionary for the for the hockey business. Yeah, he he gave players confidence and a sense of self worth. Yep. Mm. Uh, they players finally understood how much money they were making for the owners, which they never heard any of that from Eagleson yeah. and and one one interesting fact about Eagleson is throughout his reign as leader of the NHLPA he was also an agent yeah. running a player agency representing players and if you were an Eagleson client you got preferential treatment by the players association and if you weren't an Eagleson client and were represented by one of his competitors you were totally ignored Yep. The other the other thing about Eagleson that people should understand is when he went around to dressing rooms to talk about the pension plan or a new collective bargaining agreement, which really they were all jokes back then, the CBAs. Um, if anybody dared to ask a question and it didn't matter who you were, many veteran respected players would raise a hand and ask a question about the pension fund um, and the pension plan, Eagleson would scream at them in front of the dressing room, berate them, call them stupid, ask what right they have to ask a question, humiliate them to the point where Eagleson would then say any questions and nobody would dare raise their hand 
because they know what's coming if they do ask a question. And Alan, they also knew that Al could then go talk to his friends in management in the NHL, and that guy's career would be finished. So it wasn't just that within the Players Association, you'd be in trouble. Your career might be over. I mean, poor Jim Kite. I remember Jim Kite got up in a meeting and said, why is it the Players Association is paying for the running of your law office in downtown Toronto? Why is it that we're paying for all of the parking lot and all these things there? And of course, Al just ripped them apart. Al knew some things about him. And, and I guess Kite had been late getting his payment in one year for his dues. And Al brought all that out and humiliated him. And the message was there. And you just didn't dare go there because that's 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 what would happen to you. To jump in here for a second, guys, too, in terms of scale, right, coming out of the, the 80s and into the early 90s, when you have the Eagleson good now switch over, Alan has told me this story many times. Can you can you talk about the actual physical manis- manifestation of the NHLPA which was Alan Eagleson's office, which was located where? Yeah, it was located about three blocks from Maple Leaf Gardens downtown. In fact, he was just around the corner from my office at CBC. And one night I can remember going over in the, the, the dark with a, with a tape measure and measuring the parking spots in his, in, his, in his parking lot because he was charging for 10 parking spaces. Uh, to the Players Association. And I went over one night because I knew there wasn't 10 and I measured out and I had the city's bylaws about how wide it had to be the whole thing. And he had four parking spots and he was charging them for 10. I mean, there was no little deal. It was so small that he wouldn't, that he wouldn't uh, bend over to pick up a nickel on the street or, or whatever. I mean, it, it gets to the point where he's, uh, when we finally get the information, uh, people like Mike Gillis, who was a player at, at one point, a client of Eagleson's, uh, Eagleson took his uh, disability insurance, took part of his disability insurance when Mike's career ended. That's one of the reasons that Mike got politicized and ended up as an agent himself. Yep. Uh, you know, those are the kind of things that happen all the time. And and to try to understand the mentality pre-Bob Goodnow, the, the, the famous story that was told me by Gretzky's agent, they were sitting with uh, Bruce McNall after the trade was made. And they're sitting around the table and Bruce McNall is basically saying to Eagle, to, uh, to uh, Gretzky, right, well, we need to pay you like a superstar. This is L.A. Uh, and so I'm going to I'm going to pay you three billion dollars. And Gretz goes, well, you know, I don't I'm, I'm not so sure about that. Are we going to have enough money to pay for other players and stuff? And and it was uh, his agent kicked him under the table and said, shut up. <laughs> this is the reality. There is money in this business. And, and that's where players were. Oh, gosh, we won't have enough money to pay the other guys and I'll be resented, et cetera. Et cetera. But it was it was guys like Gretzky's contract and then later Lemieux. Steve Eisenman was another big one in the early days. They changed everything. And once people knew what the other guys were making, that opened up the whole can of worms for, for, for the owners, at least, and their resentment. And the, and the Players Association physically was the back office of, <laughs> of Eagleson's law office. It was really just a tiny little room, uh, maybe just a bit bigger than a, than a broom closet. It used to be that, a shed. That had three employees. Yeah. That was it. So, Alan, it would be smaller than the office that you're sitting in right now. Oh, uh, uh, I have never physically been in that space before, but I'm led to believe by people who have been. Uh, it's been referred to me as a glorified broom closet. Jeez, <laughs> oh, I, I, I was in there doing interviews in there, and yes, it was it was more like a shed. 
that had been added. It was an old building. It was an old city building and they uh, renovated it for business purposes. And this must've been a shed that they built onto the side of it. Yeah. Three people running the whole PA business and, uh, you know, Al running in and out and he wore so many hats. It was incredible. And plus, of course, he also ran hockey Canada. So if you wanted to play internationally for Canada, he was also the guy who could give you thumbs up or thumbs down. And, and he was, he was taking from hockey Canada. He would tell, he told the players, that you, you, you're participating, obviously, for your country, but you're doing a service for the players, the other players, because it's increasing their pensions. When we play, the money we make is increasing their pensions. Well, come to find out that, in fact, what happened was all of the money that came from the, the international play, all it did was help the owners, top up the owners' contributions to the pension plan. The players never made anything extra from it. It just meant the owners didn't have to go into their genes to pay for those pension contributions on an annual basis. And again, which is a total fraud is a total fraud. It always was. Yeah. Yeah. So this is into the nineties. You have to understand, like, you know, it's such a shocking thing given how, um, I mean, listen, the NHL, you you could, you could argue that there are, are holes in the NHLPA's professionalism to this day. However, far more, uh, modern, far more professional. And it's unbelievable that up to a point, you know, in my lifetime that it was run like that, like that sounds like something out of the forties. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's sad because they started with a, with a bad situation. And then for about 10 years, Bob and, and other people, it wasn't just Bob, other people basically did this thing as Alan said, players respecting themselves and respecting their ability, et cetera. And then of course the catastrophe of 2004, 2005, in which, the owners get their salary cap, but more than that, they break the union. And and the the, the part that always made me disappointed was that going into the into the the uh, the, the strike, the lockout, <clears throat> Bob had gone to the players and said, "Listen, this could be eighteen months. This could be two years. If you're not in for it, I won't push. Oh no, we're in for it. Let's do it. Let's. We got to establish. We got to keep a salary cap out. Well, they got about eighteen months in or a year in." And a lot of them just started wetting their drawers. And, oh, well, what about the game? And, you know, where am I going to go? And they gave let's, up. Let's 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 set up chronologically how we get to 2004, 2005. So as you said, 1992, uh, the only time in its history, the NHLPA went on strike 10 days before the end of the regular season. And the issue... The primary issue they were striking for was the NHLPA sought um, the group licensing rights of players. So they wanted the player's name, image, and likenesses that they would then be able to put into the entire group of players in the league, sell those rights to uh, for trading cards, uh, later on video games and generate money off of these deals to pay for their operations. Yeah. And, and, and at first the owners adamantly refused to give the players association, those group licensing rights. And after 10 days of holding strong and united together, the owners relented and gave up those rights in exchange for playing the playoffs and extending the CBA one year. Mm. Okay. So uh, the, the playoffs got got played and a very significant thing happened. The NHL had no commissioner at the time. 
Mm. It was John Ziegler, longtime president of the NHL. The owners were very unhappy with John Ziegler's performance during the 10-day strike. They saw that they had lost to the Players Association, and they, I think they could see what Bob was doing in being able to, with salary disclosure and 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 talking to the players about the power that they could have within the system and the things that they should want next because the first attempt was so successful, they figured we need to professionalize ourselves on our side. And they went and hired the vice president of the NBA in charge of salary caps, a person by the name of Gary Bettman. So Gary Bettman is now brought in and not as president, which was Ziegler's title. He's brought in as the NHL's first ever commissioner. Um, and he insisted on them calling him commissioner. That was part he, of the deal. That was, that's correct. Yeah. And, and, and it was David Stern who strongly recommended uh, Gary Bettman uh, to Bruce McNall, the owner of the LA Kings, who at the time was also chairman of the NHL board of board of governors. So Gary Bettman is now commissioner and we head into 1994 and the, the, the promise Gary made to the owners in 1994, I will bring a salary cap to the NHL. I will do that. And starting in September 1994, Gary's first lockout, players locked out. What happened then, Bruce? Well, the, 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 the whole goal, of course, was to get a salary cap. And the, the, the thing went on again. <clears throat> the, the, the lockout went on. And it's important to remember, there was, as you said, there was only one strike by players. Everything else was instituted by the NHL. It was lockout. They were locked out. And the NHL players hung together pretty much through that, through that, uh, through that uh, lockout. And I believe it was February of the, that year, January, February of the next year, that the that they had a solution. And Gary did not get his salary cap. They had they brought in other things. They brought in all sorts of stuff about dampening uh, veteran salaries, uh, uh, restricting rookies from making too much money, etc. But they didn't get it, and they were so galled by it because, of course, they shut their business down. They said to Gary, "Well, you know, you told us we were going to get our salary cap, and we didn't do that." And they were really put out with it. And uh, they they doubled down. And the players and Bob, you know, you have to understand, they took adv full advantage of everything. The salaries went up. Guys were in good positions. Every time the NHL did something, they found the loopholes. And it, and it worked really, really successfully for them uh, to the point that, again, the NHL said, OK, we're going to put money aside. And they put a lot of money aside because we think we may have to shut these guys down for a year or two years to get the hard salary cap. And so right. you had this phony war going on in the 90s in which the two sides were getting ready for the big fight, uh, the, the one over the salary cap that the owners were determined they had to have. And, and when, when Bob came, when Bob Goodnow came to the NHLPA, the average league salary at the time was $276,000. And by 2003, the average league salary had risen to 1.83 million. 
Yeah. Okay. So, so a, and this is under a free marketplace system. Uh, yes, free agency originally for three years, um, did unrestricted, did not exist for players under that CBA, the 94, 95 CBA, the 95 CBA. Um, it was age 32 for three years. And then it was uh, reduced a year under that agreement to age 31 yeah. and, and free agency remained age 31 all the way until 2003. And I'm just going to give some context too, for people that haven't heard the story. I just looked it up. Um, so you, you, you're talking about the NHL salary rising from $275,000 to 1.83 million. So it's almost at $2 million 10 years later. In the time since the 2004-2005 lockout, and we're coming up on 20 years, um, the salary of the the average NHL player salary has only gone up a million. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a lot to us. A million bucks is a lot of money. But when you consider that you covered two million in, or just about a million and a half, I guess, in 10 years, and now in the last 20, only another million, it's kind of interesting the effect the salary cap has had on the players and and their market value. Well, there was there was certainly some catch up, and that's why it, ha it it went so fast because the market was completely repressed, and it and it allowed it. And the owners had no self discipline. You, again, Alan, you remember <laughs> in those days, the owners were fighting over third string left wingers who had scored fifteen goals and throwing money after them. They had no idea how to attach value to players and to, and to construct a proper uh, a payroll, and thus. The, uh, you know, lifetime guys, the 32 year old guys were making all the money and they weren't the people who people came to see. They wanted to see the 24, 25 year old guys and the NHL had them under some restraint. But yes, they, you know, the, the salaries had been restrained, uh, but the owners couldn't control themselves. And we started to get, and this is what all of my colleagues in the media kept talking about. Oh, well, it's, it's a two tier league, the rich and the haves, uh, the rich and the not rich, the haves and the have nots, et cetera. And, and uh, we can't have this. Uh, you know, everybody's got to stay in the league, et cetera. And uh, a city like Calgary that I'm in right now was under a lot of stress because we had a 62 cent dollar here. Uh, they couldn't raise money in the same way. And it looked like the Calgary's and those kind of people were going to disappear and go to bigger markets. So there were a lot of other things going on behind the scenes. And, and all of these lovely stories being written by the media all helped Gary with, with the public opinion in particular, but also to sell it to his owners. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're now uh, heading into 2003, and there were a couple of very significant things that happened. Uh, one thing that very few people ever know, have ever heard about, and it, it has been very lightly reported, uh, I, I know that Bruce is well aware of it, is there was a secret initiative that was never publicly disclosed between Bob Goodnow and Gary Bettman in 2003 to very quietly meet together and try to figure out uh, a, a, a new system for the NHL before the pending 2004 lockout. And it was uh, nicknamed uh, Project Bluefin. And, and there are very few people in the world who know anything about Bluefin. Yeah, it's uh, in the book. It's in, it's, it's in it's, Money Players. Yeah. It absolutely is in your yeah. book. Yeah. And uh, you're one of the few people who, through your uh, amazing reporting, was able to get somebody, I don't know who, to tell you about it. Um, but uh, My lips are sealed. 
<laughs> but they, and they they bluefin comes from the name of the restaurant in manhattan it's uh it's a sushi restaurant where uh gary bettman and bob goodnow met most of the time just them alone uh in the back of the restaurant at the bluefin uh to talk about how this new system could possibly work and what what bob proposed was a 5% rollback on all NHL contracts along with a luxury tax. And there was detailed um, modeling, financial modeling by um, um, some of the best financial minds in Canada to show how the system would work under the uh, luxury tax revenue sharing system that they had put together and there was extensive i mean several meetings over several months and they got to the end of the line where this is where we are today and gary said nope i'm shutting it down we need a salary cap we need cost certainty these meetings and this project is over yeah at that point gary was viewing the nhl like Kentucky Fried Chicken. It was it was a franchise operation, and he had all of these people, and he had to assure all of them that they would have some sort of guarantee of what their workforce was going to was going to get. Uh, he, the nuance that he was dealing in entertainment as opposed to something a commodity like Kentucky Fried Chicken never seemed to never seemed to get to him. He 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 was obsessed with a kind of 1980s version of franchising, which was that we had to have teams in all sorts of cities so we could exploit their local TV, regional TV, and radio, and, and those sorts of things. And he was getting lots of feedback again from the Canadian cities in the West. Here, 62 cent dollar, we're going to be out of luck, etc. And so when Gary would take any from uh, from project bluefin back to them it was a non-starter you told us you were getting a, a salary cap now go and do your job mm. right and and then the next thing gary did was he uh hired a gentleman by the name of arthur levitt who was the former commissioner ah, yes. of the securities and exchange commission and the uh, nhl commissioned levitt to do a overview of all nhl revenues and the purpose of it, paid for by NHL owners, of course, Levitt and his staff and the report were all commissioned and paid for by the NHL owners to produce a report showing how much money. See, anytime we're in the middle of a CBA, we always hear from Gary how wonderful the NHL business is. We've got record revenues. We've got record this. We've got record that. Whenever you get to the end of the CBA, NHL owners are losing millions of dollars. <laughs> this cannot continue. And that's what everyone was hearing back in 2003. The NHL was on the precipice. Players were earning um, way too much money, um, even though it was the owners paying negotiating those deals and agreeing to those deals yep. and we're going to prove it to you and we're going to prove it to you with arthur levitt yeah and he had a he had a profile and he was he was a respected guy etc and and in levitt's defense he only he could only produce a report based on what he was given right mm -hmm. it's not it's not like he he, he 
purposefully distorted things. One of the big things that came out of this, and, and Russ Conway did a lot of great work on this on this particular subject. But one of the things that was not in the uh, the Levitt's report, of course, was about luxury boxes and and arena costs, etc. None of those things were put in there. The luxury boxes were not accounted for as part of the revenue stream. Or if they were accounted for, they would have a building that had an NBA team and an NHL team, and they would figure out which of the two was losing money or making money, and they would assign that cost to whichever one needed the tax benefit. So, so if in the case in the case of the Leafs, where honestly the Raptors were not a moneymaker at that point, you could yep. have made that argument. Yeah, and that's it was made. And it was very embarrassing when it came out because Gary had thought that they could slip this by people. And again, Russ Conway and, and, and a number of other people did some work. There were other things about how, how when, when they had the, their team was playing out of town, uh, owners were, were deducting particular stuff, tax purposes, because it wasn't at home, that they didn't have to pay taxes on, on the players or whatever. There was all sorts of stuff going on. But Levitt, again, he, he gave it a nice, pretty face. I'm a respected guy. And here you go. And it was thrown to my media colleagues. So, of course, oh, yeah, there you go. Oh, boy, it's bad. Oh, yeah, it's bad. We're all there goes the game. You know, the two words, the game. I always remember Gretz saying, I, we got to be careful. We don't want to kill the game as if somehow the NHL was the game. Right. And, and the thing about Levitt's report, like Bruce said, and it's very important people understand this, is it was an unaudited report. Yeah. What, what Levitt did is he went around to different teams and met with CFOs and said, okay, give me your revenue. Mm. And, and they gave him what they wanted to give him. And they, there was no auditing. There was no verification process. There was no confirming uh, that all, there were no documents submitted to Levitt under penalty of perjury, that this is all the revenue and no more. And they used a lot of very creative accounting tricks in this report to come to one conclusion. And this was the top line of the Levitt report that got reported everywhere. The players are making 76% of all NHL revenues in 2002. And the and, and NHL owners are losing hundreds of millions of dollars. And that was the justification Gary needed for the media, just mm -hmm. like Bruce said, and the fans to be able to say, we need a salary cap for our very survival. I remember and that. Who, and who are these greedy players making millions of dollars on their own to not understand the game, the future viability of the NHL. We're going to lose. We heard this all the time. We're going to lose 10 teams to bankruptcy. Yeah. The league will not be able to continue without a cap. And remember, I, Gary also sold what one of the things he did when he was selling his model was, of course, pointing to baseball. The irony is that baseball got everything kicked off. That, that was the sport that opened up free agency and started the ball rolling that way. And I talk a lot about that in my book, Cap in Hand. Uh, but by that point, by 2003, they, they just had a luxury tax. They had gone their own way. They had a different system. And, and salaries were rising quickly in baseball, too. And Gary just pointed to that. We can't have a luxury tax. Look at baseball. It's out of control. The owners, 
you know, they're afraid of each other and they're outbidding each other and they're spending money they don't have. This is our chance to be sober. And, and to a certain extent, it was a very Canadian aspect about it. You know, we can't get to be too rich. We've got to all sort of, you know, shoulder the, the burden together type of thing. Whereas what had happened to the league was the league had got a fair dose of American capitalism and, and you know, salaries, et cetera. And, and they were just trying to hide the money in the short term until they got the salary cap. I I have a hard time in today's climate with the idea that billionaires and maybe at the time hundreds of millionaires because, because there's you know the, the, not all of the owners back then would have been billionaires I don't think but they would have been that day's equivalent of billionaires have a hard time with the idea that the average person could accept that people who had made astounding amounts of money in their careers or had astounding family money right? Yeah. These are people who are used to making a ton of money, who pride themselves on making a ton of money. When Keith Olbermann was on this show, he said they act sometimes like they invented money. That's yeah. that's how rich they are. I have a hard time with how the public and how members of the media would have accepted that all of these people would just sign up to buy a team and lose money hand over fist for no reason. Like if well, you delivered that today, yeah. people would say... Oh, so you're a billionaire and, and you like making money and this you're saying you're losing this much money, then sell the team. There was a time back in the golden era of hockey and even into the present day, but particularly back then when the owners made out that they were running trusts on behalf of the city and the fans. We're not making any money. We're losing money here, but we're so invested in our communities. We're making sure that the Boston Bruins continue or the Chicago Blackhawks continue. So it, it, to your point, they, they've always had that mentality about, you know, selling it to the public that this is just a trust. We're not here to make any money. We believe so much in our city and our, and our home that we wanted to have an NHL franchise, et cetera. And so you, you got all of that stuff uh, from them and going into the, going into the lockout. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was, it was something that was hard to get across in the media because there were so many people who wanted to believe what the NHL was saying. And, you know, I, my most popular line that I used all the time is that the owners, they talk like capitalists, uh, they talk like capitalists, but they act like socialists. And, 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 and you know what, what, what I always found fascinating about that whole thing, um, Mike Illich owned the Detroit Tigers in major league baseball. <laughs> so he had a franchise in a league with no cap and a luxury tax. Mm -hmm. And in the NHL, you know, we need a cap or we're out of business. Yeah. Right. And at the time of the 2004 lockout, the Detroit Red Wings were at the top of NHL payrolls over $80 million. Mm -hmm. almost to where we are today and and you're telling me that the illich family were negotiating contracts player contracts with the detroit red wings that they couldn't afford it's a free market so yeah. by definition if they're signing those contracts with players they can afford it Mm -hmm. This this was the same in all the sports, but in particular with hockey, is that you were you were considered a bad guy among the owners if you were out competing to to win. They if you were going to say like the Illich family did, we will we will pay what it takes to win. That wasn't good news. We don't we don't we don't want to hear that sort of stuff. We want to hear you want to win within certain parameters, and we'll tell you what the parameters are. 
And it was, it's been the same in other sports too. The same, the same sort of mentality. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so September 15th, 2004, the lockout is declared by Gary. The doors are shut. Um, players. Now let's, let's talk about one thing leading up to this. And Bruce talked about this right at the beginning of, of this podcast. Um, Bob Goodnow had gone around for almost two years meeting with every NHL team with the players. And he told the players, who here wants a salary cap? No one raised their hand. I'm telling you guys, Gary Bettman has learned from 1994-95 where the lockout lasted half a season and he did not have authority to cancel the year and when he tried to cancel the season in 94 95 the owner said no you go back and negotiate a cba without a salary cap if you have to but you have to save the season gary learned from that it was a very bitter defeat for him and the promises he made about bringing a cap to the NHL. And for 10 years, he was planning on the next battle and getting that salary cap. Yeah. And Gary had determined that the only way to do it was to cancel a season. So leading up to the the lockout on the NHL side, they laid off all their staff. Teams were told, lay off all your staff. Don't pay people for the year. Cut, reduce your expenses. They, there was never an intention unless the players capitulated early to play the 0405 season. And all of the owners, or most of the owners, were totally on board before the lockout started. They knew there is not going to be any hockey in 0405. We're going to burn the year to get the cap. Okay. So that's a very important point to know as we're going into this. Yeah. On Bob's side, he knew this. He knew this. He knew. They're not going to do the same thing again. The, the, the owners are not going to go until January and throw in the towel after losing half a season. Once this lockout starts, they're in for one year to, to, to burn the year. But, but they're not in for two years. Mm. So Bob told the players, all the players, he told all the agents, I was there. I heard it in agent meetings. Bob said, we have to prepare for one season getting burned. And the point where we will win this thing is January of the next year. So we said, months. this is going 18 months. And he went to every NHL dressing room. And he said, guys, start saving your money. In two years, 
we are going to be locked out for 18 months. There was no one who said at that time, 18 months, Bob, are you out of your mind? We can't be shut down for 18 months. Everybody was on board. The PA executive committee was on board. The players were on board. Bob went into this lockout in 2004 with the overwhelming support of the players and the agents because nobody wanted a salary cap and everybody knew 18 months. That was the mantra. Everywhere you went, every player you talked to, we're going to be out for 18 months. Because when you get to January of the second season and there's no deal, Gary's either got to make a deal without a cap or the NHL has to cancel its second consecutive year of no hockey, which would basically put the league into oblivion. No league has ever shut down for an entire year because of a labor dispute, but two years was unthinkable. Mm -hmm. And that was how the lockout started. Every player on board, 18 months. Every agent on board, 18 months. What happened next, Bruce? What happened next was time. (laughs) (laughs) Time went by. And players who had who, who had made this obligation to Bob started to worry, and and I, I keep going back to it about the game. But they would they all went back to their hometowns, and they went back to see their mom and pop and their friends they grew up with, and they're all going, "What do you mean you're sitting here? You, you could be making a million dollars a year, and what is it? Salary cap? Ah, under the salary cap, you'll make this 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 much money." And so this slow, steady drip, drip, drip on the players, the pressure on the players, and then pressure on a number of I don't want to put a number on it, but a, a number of, of agents who I think found themselves overextended financially themselves, hadn't prepared mm. properly, got themselves into, into some deep water. And then all of a sudden they're looking like, hey, we got to get some contracts. We need to get some money flowing here or our agency is going to go, you know what? And they start talking to their players about, hey, listen, c- could you go and see your owner uh, and talk to your owner and maybe start a back channel thing here. And, and can we find some, some other way to do this? And of course, Bob had said, you know, don't do any of this stuff because you, what do you call it? The love shack. They'll take you to the love shack. I think that's what Bob's <laughs> expression was. And they'll, they'll, they'll give you the whole song and dance, etc. And eventually we had players like Jerome McGinley, uh, Trevor Linden and several others, notable guys going behind the PA's back and, doing a negotiation or trying to find some common ground because they were afraid that if they even had one year canceled, that the game would disappear again, misunderstanding hockey is not the NHL. The NHL is not hockey. Hockey will always be there. The teams will be there. What we're talking about is Gary Bettman's NHL, but the players didn't understand that in in spite of Bob telling them all this stuff, they didn't understand that. And so by the time we got past the new, and we started then of course, all the newspaper articles, well, what's the drop dead date? We got to do something by this. And, you know, the clock is ticking louder and louder. Is there a compromise we can make, et cetera? The owners the whole time are just sitting back because they, they know they're not going to do anything. But the players are honestly starting to think, well, maybe we can find something in between the two, the two positions. Uh, and you had the pressure. And then finally, Bob, 
he 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 lost control of the situation in the sense that these players said, "Okay, we're going to go and see if we can't make a deal." And they went. To, I believe it was the Buffalo, New York, or Niagara Falls, New York. Niagara Falls. Niagara but, Falls. But before that, in in there, there had been no meetings and no communication and no negotiation up until um, the end of the first week of December. And then on December the 9th, I remember the date well, Bob Goodnow, without really consulting with the membership, he talked to the players on the executive committee, but the, the, the 700 plus players in the NHL, many of them were completely blindsided by this. Bob Goodnow made a revolutionary proposal to end the lockout in December. And what was that? Go ahead. He proposed a 24% rollback on all existing NHL contracts for the life of those deals. So if you were on a five-year deal and you had four years left or you had six years left or you had three years left, every year remaining on your deal would be rolled back 24%. It was a revolutionary proposal that took the wind out of players when they heard it, especially since many of them heard about it for the first time in the media. Yeah. Mm. So that was a bit of a mistake. Well, you, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I wouldn't classify pushed. it he a was, mistake. Yeah. He was being pushed really hard. Mm. Uh, really okay. hard. And, and and every day, and can't you come up with a plan B? And and I remember writing a column at the time and saying, Bob's mistake is he doesn't have a plan B. He went in with plan A and that was it. And he had, it was 18 months to, to 24 months. And and again, people in, in, in the hockey community, the players uh, and, and agents, isn't there some way we can find a, a middle ground, et cetera? And, and, and he, you know, the pressure got to him. Uh, he had, he was out under a lot of stress personally. He had some things going on in his personal life that were stressing him. Uh, and, and I think he just needed to answer all of that stress with some sort of revolutionary. I honestly, Alan, I don't think he expected to be put out there. It's almost, it was an absurd uh, when I saw it, it was an absurd thing that he put out. And I thought he was only making it for the sake of saying, okay, I tried. Right. Mm, right. This is okay. such an amazing proposal. And he tried to, uh, present it if the league says no to this okay the league is operating in bad faith because you have to remember the 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 league exerted tremendous pressure and control over the media mm. and the media was almost 95% um uh forcefully against the players and that filtered out into communities. I was getting calls from players back then saying to me, Alan, I can't go into a supermarket without some, some person yelling at me that I'm a greedy asshole and how dare I hold up the game and they can't watch hockey on Saturday nights all because of me. <laughs> so players didn't feel comfortable or, or safe going out into their own communities. And uh, they weren't playing hockey. Many, many players took off to Europe, played in Europe. Um, players had tours or they played, you know, all-star players playing in different European countries. 
to 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 stay sharp, to play, to raise some money for charity. There was all kinds of stuff going on for players to try to stay busy, but many of them just stayed home, yeah. stayed home and went crazy because they weren't playing hockey for the first time in November, December, January of their entire lives, their entire yeah. lives. Yeah. So the uh, 24% rollback, um, uh, Gary swiftly rejected it. And that was the end of negotiations uh, until January. And then uh, sometime around uh, the middle of January uh, was when this fateful meeting took place in Niagara Falls. Most of the players at that meeting, of course, represented by one particular high-profile agent. But anyway, we, we won't get into that too much. And the other complication in all of this thing, and it, it has been in every one of the, the negotiations the NHL has had with the players, is there was always the question about labor law in Canada versus labor law in the States. Yes. Which, which laws were governing the running of the NHL? Uh, can we make an agreement uh, that works in the United States, but that doesn't, doesn't apply to Canadian law, vice versa? Uh, and And... If you had a complaint and you wanted to go to to uh, to to complain about it and go to arbitration, well, where would you go? And which standard did did what, a, adhered? Was it the American or the Canadian standard? And it, it, it pr produced a lot of confusion. And there was no sense that we could go to one one place, one stop shopping, and get those kind of questions answered. So when you're talking about Bob and and wanting to to say they're arguing in bad faith, well, who, who do you go and complain to? Who has who has the ability to tell the league to snap to it? Right, right. Yeah. Oh. So so this meeting. What happens at this meeting? Like you know, they talk about the you talk about the meeting and that sort of thing. What? Where? What's? Why is this a big hinge point? Well, what 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 occurred at the meeting was the players um, met with uh, Bill Daly, mm -hmm. and and they communicated to him that they were open to negotiating a CBA based on a salary cap. And uh, that was the first time that that door got opened. And like anyone can imagine, once that door is opened, how do you close it? And, and, but, and also keep in mind, the vast majority of NHL players were 18 months were not playing hockey for 18 months. They had no idea this meeting was going on. Right. And they had no idea that anybody representing the players, including players on the committee, were going to communicate to the other side that they would consider and work off of proposals leading to a salary cap. Now, they certainly had no guidance to go and do that. There was there was a, a, an assumption, but being high profile guys, uh, that they could that they sort of had the right to go in there and sound them out, etc. But it, it again, it reminded me of all of the problems that we had back in the '90s when getting rid of Eagleson and 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 getting a, a consciousness about the Players Association and guys like Jerome McGinley, Trevor Linden, uh, you can name a couple more yourself, Alan, who were at that meeting. They destroyed the, the collective consciousness of the NHL Players Association with that meeting. From that day on, 
From that day on, the NHL knew, okay, we know how long we have to push the players so that we can get what we want. In any future negotiations, we know what the standard is. They got to six, uh, six months in approximately. We started talking about shutting the league down or a 26-game schedule, whatever it was. We panicked them, and they, and they will break. And, and Gary went back to his owners and said, we got that on our credit card for the rest of time. The, the players will break. And especially once Bob was not included in the negotiations, they knew they they had him. It was only a matter of time till they had him. And then the irony of all that, Alan, is they all go there, you know, cap in hand and on, on a on bended knee to Bill Daly and give up the salary cap. And then NHL says, "Yeah, we're canceling this season anyhow." You know, <laughs> they thought somehow, wow. okay, we can bring it all back. They they did. They're so naive. They're nice guys, but they're naive, and they didn't even get the season played. The players didn't realize that the season was, was, there was no way that season was going to be played under any circumstances because there was a second motive from, from Gary and the owners beyond just getting a salary cap. Salary cap was critically important. Cost certainty was critically important. But the other goal from the league side was rid themselves of Bob Goodenow. And they needed to get rid of Bob and just getting a cap and letting Bob remain as leader was only half was a pirate pirate victory. It was only a half victory. They needed the whole, the whole enchilada. And that included getting rid of Bob as well. So let me just quickly run through this because it's actually pretty fascinating on February 12th. Okay, February 12th, during the lockout, um, the NHL, Gary Bettman, communicated to the players for the first time, we will agree to a CBA with a salary cap not linked to revenues. So every proposal from the league regarding a salary cap was always linked to defined revenues and no one on the NHLPA side trusted that the league would actually report accurate revenues because the Levitt report just shows you how inaccurate and lowballed those revenues were. So how do we agree to a, a, a CBA linked to revenues when we can't trust that these revenue reports are going to be accurate. So for the first time, Gary said, okay, we're going to, we're, we'll do a hard cap with no exceptions and it will be fixed. There will be no revenue reporting. It won't matter whether revenues are high or low or in the middle. It's a fixed cap for the life of the CBA. And uh, the NHLPA, Two days later, on February 14th, responded with a proposal of a hard cap. It's the first time the players ever, through good now, and the other executives at the PA, we're proposing a salary cap at $52 million for eight years, not linked to revenues. So the cap would remain flat at $52 million for eight years. Um, 
On February 15th, the next day, Gary proposed in a fax back to the NHLPA, $42.5 million fixed, fixed cap for the eight years, plus $2.2 million in benefits. And if you don't accept it, the season is canceled. And you've got 24 hours. The NHLPA replied uh, at $49 million on February the 15th in the afternoon. And Gary Bettman rejected the offer, marched to the podium in New York City, and canceled the NHL season. And then what happened after the season was canceled immediately after it was canceled was really one of the most remarkable things anybody's ever lived through who was part of it at the time. Bruce, why don't you tell us what happened then? Do you want to talk about Bob? You mean, I want to talk about the season almost being uncanceled. Oh, well, there, there was the faint hope clause. Yes. And again, this was, this was all to placate the players who, who always thought no matter what Bob said or Gary said, that there was always, well, let's just play the playoffs. So let's just, whatever. Uh, and, and there was this, I don't have my, my, my manuscript in front of me, but there was this faint hope that, well, maybe we can put this thing back together. We can put this, the, the, it back together. And they had meetings. You remember, I think it was Pittsburgh. They had the meet, went to Pittsburgh and had some meetings there. Uh, and there was this, all oh, this, the media was excited. Oh, they're bringing it back. Gary, that was just a false flag from Gary saying that. Uh, and they went and they talked again and they came back and said, no, it's done. Wasn't was Wayne Gretzky invite, invited yes. to that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. it was uh, Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux were invited in uh, along with um, all the top executives and executive committee members of the NHLPA and uh, all of, uh, you know, Gary, Bill and all of the lawyers on the NHL side. And uh, the Hockey News actually reported the morning of the meeting that there was a deal in place at 45 million hard cap deals done players are getting on planes in europe and flying back yeah i mean it was a phone blowing up the deals done at 45 million i hear the deals done at 45 million we got a deal at 45 million so they go into a 6 hour meeting all these people together and it was the 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 word on the street was there is uh one side's going to make a move the league was at 425 the nhl was at uh, the nhlpa was at 49 and one side's going to propose 45 and the other side's going to accept it and that's the cba and we're going to go play a 26 game season the lockout's over yeah but gary didn't want to play a 45 if 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 Gary Bettman in that meeting after the season was canceled and now on the verge of being uncanceled if that's even a word in the English language um if he would have proposed 45 million hard cap that would have been a deal because the players were sitting there waiting for that proposal to accept it yeah and and, uh, and, and that would have been not linked to revenues and static for for 8 years Yes. Yeah. So the so it would not so just again I want to catch people up on this because it's important. Currently, the cap is based on that. 
50 to the players, 50% of the players, 50% to the owners. Meaning that that, that, that proposal, um, actually, at that time, it was just there was no linkage to revenues. Right. You're, you're, so the correct. owners could have made as much money as they wanted. That's right. And Unlimited. they would have had cost certainty across the board. Unlimited amount of revenue. And they didn't and, take that. And they didn't take that at 45. So they have complete victory. Complete. Uh, I mean, you want to talk about surrender? I mean, the NHLPA, it basically tapped out. Right. We're wow. out. We're done. We're waving the white flag of surrender. You know. But again, guys, and we get back to this point again, you're talking about the money and, and it's a, the NHL got what it wanted. The tooth, the second thing, the, the second meeting, the, the false hope thing, that was the end of Bob Goodnow. That was the way to get rid of Bob Goodnow. They were willing, oh, we'll move some money around, et cetera. At that point, terms aren't as important for them. They've broken the league, uh, the Players Association. Now they have to get rid of Bob Goodnow. And that whole little theater, with, I can remember the Mario and, and Gretz coming out and talking to the media, oh, it's going well, or it's going whatever. All that sort of hype to make you think it was going to happen. It wasn't going to happen. They had to get rid of Bob Goodnow. And that was and and that that faint hope that that the denial of the hope that all those players had and that the fans had, that that was that was it for 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 Bob. It, it took a, a few more days after that, but that was it for Bob. And the NHL had the two things it wanted. Yeah. So so what happened was they the the seasons canceled. Mm -hmm. The Stanley Cup actually has for two thousand four oh five engraved on the Stanley Cup season not played. Uh, and, uh, we're now going into the summer and it was, uh, in June, 2005, when, uh, the sides got together again. Yeah. Cause they had, the they, the they, they, they'd, they'd split apart after that meeting. There was nothing going on through, through the spring from February when the season was canceled until around June, there was nothing and we're heading Everyone's expecting that we're heading into season two of a lockout and uh, the sides got together and the PA tried to engage on a 45 minute, a 45 million hard cap with no linkage to revenues. And Gary responded by saying that proposal, that concept is out the window. The only CBA we're going to have now is a CBA linked to revenues. So right then in June, if they, it's the second time, Gary could have had it in February of 05, and now he could have it again in June, an eight-year deal at 45 million fixed hard cap, make all the money you want. It's never going to go up over the course of those eight years. And, and the NHL and Gary insisted on a linkage to revenues. And ultimately in July, on July 13th, they signed a deal. The player's percentage of revenue was at 54% and could rise to 57%. If certain revenue thresholds were hit over the life of the deal. So as the NHL HRR increased, so did the percentage going to the players. Um, the uh, cap was fixed the first year of the deal mm -hmm. at 
$39 million. There was a 24% rollback. Boy, they love that proposal. So they just said, sure, we'll put that in the deal too. A 24% rollback on every existing contract for the life of the deal. Their teams were allowed uh, two compliance buyouts. You can buy out a player and it doesn't count against the cap. And lots of other things that restricted um, the ability of players to negotiate in any kind of a free market system. But this is the one point I want to make. Gary Bettman, um, he snatched defeat to a certain extent out of the jaws of victory. What do you mean by that, Alan? What are you talking about? Remember, Gary could have had $45 million fixed for the entire life of the deal, but insisted on it being linked to revenues. So what did we see? 2004-05, we started at $39 million. We then went in 06-07 to $44 million based on revenues. We then went in 07-08 to $50.3 million. In 08-09, we now went to $56.7 million upper limit. 9 10 56.8, 10-11, 59.4, 64.3. By my calculation, that's about $3 billion over $3 billion over $45 million across the league where we ended up uh, $20 million per team over that amount by the end. Mm. All by insisting linkage to revenues. So what happened? Why did they do that? I'm assuming, oh, I mean, yeah. it's getting rid of Bob, I guess, right? Right. In 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 my opinion, um, even Gary Bettman didn't realize or appreciate how much money owners were not reporting, and mm. only when you had all of these strict, very strict Article Fifty of the CBA in two thousand five. I mean, the detail of Article Fifty where literally every dollar spent was being accounted for. Every dollar of revenue generated was being accounted for. Uh, I think the people in the league were stunned at how much money the teams were really making versus kind of believing the 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 fantasy of the Levitt report and what was actually being reported versus what was really being generated. And so I, that I, caused the cap to jump yeah. and 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 caused them to spend billions more on player salaries than what they could have had if they had taken the 45 million fixed. A couple of things here. Two things that happened 
in that period of time too, as well to increase. First of all, there was a a, a, a a building boom in the NHL. Everyone understood that you had to get into new rinks. There were a lot of new rinks that came on stream. The, the revenue streams from those buildings was all of a sudden realized by seat licenses and all sorts of new stuff that came into the league. That was important to them. And also the on the, the, the broadcast side, all of a sudden we're getting uh, uh, new sources of revenue from broadcasting that we haven't seen before. Gary's always negotiated very poorly with the networks. He's always had the fifth or sixth best best best, best, best record. But the, the final thing is two words that I, I want to put out there. Proskauer Rose. Proskauer Rose is a law firm in New York, which is which advised the NHL through all of their lockouts. But they also have worked with all the other leagues. And and I had a sense too, Alan, the Proskauer Rose was was working a little bit using the NHL uh, to try to set a template for NBA and the other leagues that they were involved in. They wanted to they wanted the hard cap and they wanted it done in a certain way. And I, I think Gary's hands to a certain extent were tied in, in, in the final details of that because the guys at Proskauer Rose had run the whole thing and they had the perspective of the entire sports world in it. And I think that was also another reason why the, you know, why they took that. But there was, there was this, again, the hubris of the guys. They, they couldn't have imagined at the start that they would break them the way they did. It was, it was like Wellington at Waterloo. And, and all of a sudden, Napoleon turns tail and goes back. And goes, we won, really? We won, we won everything? Was, they were shocked. Yeah. Mm. And then uh, one week after the CBA was announced, it was also announced that Bob Goodenow was stepping down. And that was the final piece of the puzzle for Gary and the owners in getting rid of Bob. Because Ted Saskin had basically made friends with the guys who had gone to the Love Shack in Niagara Falls. He, he became their guy at the, at the Players Association. After they did that deal, Bob was still front guy and they let him go to the meetings, but he wasn't the guy anymore for them. It was Ted Saskin. And of course, Bob went to his own execution. I mean, he was there at the, at the press conference and now he was leaving. And Ted Saskin took over a lot of resentment within the Players Association because he they felt Ted was aligned with a certain segment of, of the hockey population, uh, agents and players, uh, and other guys were, were being left out. And it just started a whole chain of events in the PA, which has not been resolved yet. We're, you know, we're, we're here again with Don Fear going out the door. Who's coming in? Is it going to be another Patsy? Is it going to be somebody who's actually going to fight for players, et cetera? So that's another of the byproducts of the lockout. Yeah. PA has never been the same. I would, I would say, I would definitely agree, Bruce, that, uh, from, from 2004-05, the NHLPA has never fully recovered from from that, um, and and the hope is that as we move forward, players get educated uh, to their history of what actually has happened at the union they belong to. And I reminded of the words: those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. And it's critical that NHL players, fans, media, all understand and educate themselves on what has occurred in the past to get to where we are today. I can't tell you how many times I sit with a player who is not happy with the cap and with escrow. Escrow that has reached as high as 22% in previous years of their total compensation money. They negotiated that exists. That's on the face page of their NHL contract that goes back. It's clawed back 
and goes back to their employer. There is no other business in America, in North America, where you can negotiate negotiate your employment contract and NHL players are employees and then have a significant percentage of that contract going back to the owner. Yeah. It's unprecedented, unheard of, and we're not talking about 2 or 3 or 4%, which would be odious in and of itself at that number. What about talking about 22, 23%? It's like, you know, if, if you know, my paycheck uh, from my employer, uh, if, if, it, or, or anybody's, it's you're taking 20% off of every paycheck. You're seeing that clawed back every couple of weeks when you get paid. I don't know when NHL players get paid if it's monthly, but I get paid every two weeks. Yeah. I can't players imagine. I get paid every two weeks. This, Be crazy year, making. this year, escrow is set at 10%. Uh, last year it was 17 point last season was 17.2 percent yeah escrow was escrow was one of the proskauer rose brainwaves by the way uh, yeah. when i talk about proskauer rose and being able to create something using the nhl as a, as a trial horse there's some of those ideas the, the escrow was there now as far as i know and i don't study it as closely as i used to i don't think any of the other t- leagues are employing escrow with their players no i have a question because obviously over the lockout, there was a of a lockout, excuse me, over the pandemic, which felt like a lockout from life, honestly. <laughs> it was a lockdown. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, there was a negotiation and extension done. Um, and in that, uh, from my rudimentary understanding, um, players were paid their full salaries, but then had to pay back the NHL over the next three years. Hence why we have a flat cap. Uh, and then at the end of that, you know, obviously we're expecting the cap to jump significantly because um, NHL revenues are back up to pre-pandemic levels almost immediately. Uh, in fact, last year, even though certain Canadian cities couldn't even have full arenas, they were right back to their 2019 levels. And this year expected to eclipse that with new TV deals and the fact that everybody's bums are in seats, those sorts of things. Is there a point the next time that this contract is up, and I don't know what year that is, um, is there a point at that at that stage where players could regain leverage and say, listen, the owners are really enjoying making piles of money. This might be a harder sell for Gary Bettman to say, okay, let's shut off the tap again for another 12 months. Well, I, I think that would require, and I keep talking about this, a, a sort of a, a collective consciousness among the players that they had then that they don't have now. At least they went into the lockout in, in 04 with it. Uh, I don't think they have it now. I, 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 it would be a rare person that could get today's players together and say, we're going to miss a whole season. I mean, Bob got everybody to agree. They'd never agree in the first place at the moment. Alan, uh, you tell me. I think that um, right now, today, it would be a very tough sell uh, to stand up in front of the players and say, our strategy going into the next CBA negotiation, uh, and Adam, it's it's in four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got four years left of the uh, existing CBA. Our strategy is to, um, you know, we're going to get locked out because we're not going to agree to do a deal um, with a cap or escrow. And we want to go back to the free market um, that existed before uh, 2004. And, and that means we have to prepare for, you know, 12 to 18 to 24 months of no hockey. 
I think that would be a very tough sell uh, as it stands today. Okay. Okay. And would that be a tough sell for Gary to the owners? Or does it matter with the NHL executive committee where it's eight teams that decide the fate well, of here, 32? Here's one of the other things that's different from 2004. Every owner, every owner, I believe, maybe except one, has come into the league since Gary became the commissioner. And, and it, it was very different when he came in. He, they, these are all established people. They had relationships, et cetera. One by one, Gary has basically, and he does favors for them. He goes to the wall. He came here to Calgary to yell at the, at the city hall about not building buildings. He's, he's been very good about doing that stuff. But he, they've all come into the league under Gary's uh, leadership. And, and also with a speech from Gary about how things work in the NHL. And it would be very difficult for them at this point, I think, to, to have a, a group of owners to basically defy Gary because many of them owe him stuff for a making sure they bought the team, the terms that they bought the team on. Uh, just look at what he did in Phoenix, how far he's gone in Phoenix. It's made no sense whatsoever, but it shows you the lengths to which he'll go to protect his business model and the way he runs the league. And every owner looks at that, looks at the Phoenix thing and says, hey, he's going to do that for me. It's tough to, it's tough to cut that guy's throat. Mm. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Just just wondering if there was any hope at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> That's all guys. It's uh it's when you talk about it it's bleak. It's bleak. And yes, the players make a lot of money now and they make far more than the average person, but they are also the best at their craft in the entire world and they put their bodies on the line and this money is supposed to last more than just, you know, uh, you know, a million dollars or whatever the average salary is now, 3.196 million dollars. That's supposed to last a lifetime. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I, maybe I'll come back sometime, Adam, and we can talk about because my book, Cap in Hand, was about what happens next in all the pro sports leagues. And I think the days of, of 30 teams and 32 teams, leagues, et cetera, uh, between globalism uh, and the betting industry, et cetera, uh, we can see it in the NBA. We've seen it in, in li the Live Golf Tour competition. I think pro sports are going to be fundamentally changed over the next 20 years. And the idea that the NHL will look the way it looks today. At least in my book, I make the the, the position that that's not going to happen. Interesting. Yeah. And by the way, that's a that's an amazing book that any sports fan uh, should read. Cap in hand. Uh, nobody has gone there yet except Bruce, and it's it's a brilliant uh, brilliant piece of uh, journalism looking into the future, and and a fascinating read. Well, thank you. You're very kind. Very kind. You got to yeah. pick up this too. This is the first book Alan told me to buy. <laughs> money players yeah. bruce wrote it Thank hey he's got, I got it. mine i got mine <laughs> hang on where's mine's back here somewhere yeah, there, so they are. <laughs> back there i always put them back there <laughs> i may be an author but i'm not dumb <laughs> <laughs> well this has been um uh for a guy that didn't live it it's been illuminating gentlemen it's been uh uh it's a little bit scary to be honest but uh also hopefully things are better in the future and things change we yeah. hope so. Yeah, we. I mean, listen. The, the, again, the NHL isn't hockey. Hockey is, is is something that belongs to the people, and it will always be there. Uh, and the NHL has to understand that. I mean, they can't. They they tried pushing it as far as they could, and they were at a point where a, a rival league or something could have sprung up and, and put them out of business, and that, that didn't happen. But that might be the that might be the only alternative here to the way the NHL runs its business. I don't know. Yeah, awesome. Bruce, thank you so much for your time. You've been incredibly generous. Thank you. This has been something that I've had in, in my mind uh, wanting to tell this story and and uh, 
uh, connecting with you and to have you uh, tell it with me and Adam uh, is truly a privilege. Well, thank you very much, and uh, enjoy watching the opening opener for for the Calgary Flames <laughs> when you, you got get it. there. You got it. I guess Bruce has just broken some news. I'm going to be heading up to Calgary for Jonathan Huberto's first game in the uh, with the Calgary Flames. <laughs> well, yeah. we're looking forward to, see, to to seeing him. This has been Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wild, powered by Sports Interaction, Canada's sportsbook. Follow Alan Walsh on Twitter at Walsh A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching Agent Provocateur and hitting the subscribe button. YouTube.com slash SDPN.